Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Raphael Scopacasa for a conversation about the ancient civilization of Samnium. Dr. Scopacasa is lecturer of history at the University of Minas Gerais, based in Brazil. He's also honorary researcher at the University of Exeter, based in the UK. He has written numerous publications over his career, including the monograph, Ancient Samnium, Settlement, Culture, and Identity Between History and Archaeology, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he joins us today from Brazil. Welcome to the call, Raphael. Thanks, Andrew. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. What was, so a question, Raphael, to start the conversation what was the ancient civilization of Samnium? Well, um, according to our historical sources, which you know uh, are basically Greek and Roman writers, the Samnites were sort of a tough and warlike people who lived high up in the mountains of the central um, uh, Apennines, uh, well, the mountains that today are known as the central Apennines in central Italy and who challenged Rome for many decades during the 4th and 3rd centuries BC before they were finally conquered. Uh, the Samnites were described as, um, as having a common origin, as descendants of the Sabines, according to one version, and also as having their own distinctive cultural traits, uh, such as language, religious traditions, uh, and also the habit of living scattered in villages and farms uh, instead of in proper cities, like the, uh, the Greeks and Romans did. Uh, they were said to rely on pastoralism, that is herding, um, instead of agriculture. And they were considered on the whole um, to have been uh, less wealthy and sophisticated, shall we say, uh, than, uh, than, than their neighbors uh, who lived in the rich coastal plains of Italy, such as the Romans themselves. Now, uh, this all sounds simple enough, but when we actually try and uh, look for the Samnites, on the ground, as it were, uh, things start to get a little complicated. It's uh, it's actually proven very difficult, if not impossible, uh, to locate the Samnites as a you know as a geographically unified group of people in antiquity. Um, mm -hmm. I personally tend to think that the people who our sources call uh, Samnites were not so much a cultural or political unit. Uh, but rather more of a fluid uh, and changing group of people uh, whose boundaries shifted depending on the context. Um, it's, um, and this is because when our sources mention the Samnites, they're not always talking about the same people necessarily. Um, having said that, there does seem to be a tendency um, for our sources to locate the Samnites in the portion of the central Apennine Mountains, which roughly corresponds to the modern provinces of um, Campobasso, Isernia, Chieti, and um, uh, Avellino. So, so roughly speaking, this is the area that runs from the Apennine Mountains all the way to the Adriatic Sea um, from the south of the modern region of Abruzzo all the way down to the area just north of Naples, more or less. So this is the, the region that normally tends to be described as, um, as Samnite country or Samnium, which is, uh, which is how the Romans called it. Now, one thing um, 
that's fairly certain, though, is that, and this should be clear by now based on what I just said, um, much of what we know about the Samnites comes from Greek and Roman accounts, right? So the main issue here is to what extent can we reasonably expect these Greeks and Romans um, to give us an accurate image of the, the people they described as Samnites, um, considering that there was some degree of prejudice, shall we say, um, uh, among the Greek and Ro Greeks and Romans against uh, mountain peoples such as the, the Samnites. Now, there's a very important book about this uh, that was published in 1995 by uh, an English scholar named Emma Dench, you might have heard of her, who's, uh, she's now a professor at Harvard, uh, and the, the title of the book is From Barbarians to New Men. Uh, so according to Dench, the Romans in particular came up with some very negative images of the Samnites, because naturally the Romans uh, regarded the Samnites as competitors, uh, and therefore they needed to put them down um, as much as possible, and he, at least initially when they were, you know, when they were fighting. Uh, and that's why you get lots of Roman writers who claim that the Samnites were in the habit of bullying their neighbors, uh, that they were arrogant and went around in flashy suits of armor, that they were predators who got their livelihood from plundering the, you know, the, the cities on the plains and that sort of thing. But on the other hand, what I really like about Emma Dench's book is that it goes beyond this type of discussion in the sense that she also talks about how the Greeks and Romans constructed positive images of the Samnites as, as brave, uh, for example, strong and brave, uh, as stoic and, uh, and reliable also. And she also looks at how the Samnites themselves may have contributed actively to uh, constructing these images of Samnite identity that we get um, in, in the Greek and Roman sources that have come down to us. So I really recommend her book uh, to people who want to know more about the Samnites and how they were viewed by their neighbors. Okay, and I can um, drop a link to uh, that scholar's book in the show notes along with your monograph, Raphael, that's Great. associated to this Great. Thank page. You. You're welcome. Um, did the did the Sam Knights have a writing system, and uh, is there any sense of what uh, terminology they would have used to define themselves? Well, um, maybe I can start answering that question by talking a little bit about their language, please, right? Uh, because that's connected with their writing. So yes, they did have a writing system, and uh, and that writing system was. Um, by all accounts, uh, the Oscan alphabet. So to understand that, I need to tell you a little bit about Oscan. So uh, the Oscan language is, um, is an Indo-European language that's um, related to Latin. Um, uh, and like I said, there was also the Oscan alphabet, which was similar to the Latin alphabet in some respects, uh, but it also had some letters that were unique to it um, because there were certain sounds in the Oscan language that you didn't get in Latin. Um, now, because Oscan was um, very widespread, it's actually difficult to say what it might have meant to the Samnites who spoke it, uh, or you know, the ones who, who used the Oscan writing system in terms of their identity, which is also something that's, um, that, you know, that turns up in your question. We know that the Oscan language um, and the Oscan alphabet were used in a rather large area of central and southern Italy, right, between the 5th and 1st centuries BC. And it wasn't just the Samnites. Uh, besides the Samnites, uh, Oscan was also spoken in Campania, 
in Apulia and Calabria, just to name a few places. And we know that each of these places developed, you know, their own local variants or dialects of Oscan. Uh, we need to remember that people easily pick up on different uh, accents and dialects uh, within the same language. Uh, and it would have se it would seem that things were sort of uh, were not very different in the ancient world. Um, and this is something also that Emma Dench, that I mentioned previously, talks about in her 1995 book. Um, she notes that it would have been very easy for a Roman uh, around the year 200 BC, for example, to spot the differences between the kind of Latin that was spoken in Rome uh, and the kind that was spoken in other Latin cities, such as Praeneste, which is actually only 30 kilometers away from Rome, by the way. So when we consider this, we can start thinking about um, how the different parts of Samnium, or perhaps even different Samnite towns or settlements, would have used, uh, would have had their own brands of Oscan, uh, and would have been able to emphasize their distinctive dialects uh, whenever rivalries, you know, local rivalries so impelled them. On the other hand, uh, we also have some evidence that the Oscan language uh, may have been used as a kind of symbol of Samnite identity in certain historical situations. Um, for example, in the um, in the years leading up to the social war of um, 91 to 87 BC, which was this major war uh, between Rome and many of the Italian communities that by that point had been Roman allies for centuries, but, but um, who had developed several grievances against Rome by that point. Uh, so, so it's uh, around the time of the social war that we have um, um, the Samnites, uh, again, posing a serious threat to Rome. And, and it, that's um, sort of like the context where it would seem that the Samnites were using their own, their, their, the Oscan language as one of the symbols of Samnite um, uh, identity. And you asked me about um, words or names that they might have used to describe themselves. Well, there's this theory that's um, maintained in the field, and it, um, I'm not exactly sure who came up with it initially, but there's this Italian scholar called Gianluca Tagliamonte, who's also written a very important book about the Samnites. Uh, it's in Italian, it's called I Saniti. Um, he thinks that uh, the Samnites called themselves the Safinim, uh, with the Oscan name Safinim. And that is uh, a, a term that we do find in Oscan inscriptions. Um, ever since the first, the, the fifth century BC, and uh, it keeps on appearing every now and then in inscriptions, um, either in Samnium or uh, neighboring areas, um, until the early first century BC. So by the time we get to the early first century BC, which is when the social war is happening, and you, again you have these Samnites um, emphasizing their their distinct non-Roman identity because they were, yeah, like I said, they were confronting Rome once again, um, that's when you find that the word Safinim again turning up rather conspicuously in, in monumental inscriptions, um, monumental Oscan inscriptions. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, um, that's one way of looking at it. So in that example, um, Raphael, the uh, monumental in inscriptions that, that have Oscan, Oscan inscribed, um, do scholars believe that that would be a case where the Samnites are actually producing that inscription? Yeah, yeah, that, that would definitely be the case um, because uh, you get these inscriptions 
Well, there's a, there's one particular inscription um, mm -hmm. that contains the word Safinim, and it dates from sometime in the late second or early first centuries BC. So in the years leading up to the social war of 91 BC. Um, and this inscription was found in this amazing place called Pietra Bondante. It's this amazing sanctuary uh, on the top of the mountain. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful mountain sanctuary. It's, a, it's actually, a, it was built, uh, it was monumentalized during the second century BC. Uh, and it would have been smack in the middle of, of Samnium, this, this area that the Romans called Samnium, like I said previously. Um, and, uh, and this, by all accounts, was a very important place um, for the Samnites, this, this Pietra Bondante sanctuary. And that's where we find this, this monumental inscription. It's a, it's a limestone inscription. Um, and it says, well, we don't really know what it says because the text is very fragmentary. So there are different interpretations of what it's saying. But the, the word Safinim does turn up, and it's followed by another Oscan word, which is, uh, regrettably, it's, uh, it's, you know, um, it's fragmentary, so we don't really know what the, word, what the following word was. But it's possible that the following word, the word that came right next to Safinim, was um, Sakaraklum, which, if, if that's an accurate reconstruction, it would mean something like the cult place of the, of the Safinim, of the Safin people. Uh, so, so the theory is that, you know, that would have been the name that, that the Samites were using to refer to themselves as a distinct collective. But of course, you know, there, there are different, uh, different views and interpretations. And the fact that the inscription is fragmentary certainly doesn't, doesn't help. But can I just add something? Mm. Uh, I, was, um, I was talking about languages and what languages the Samnites spoke. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that um, there's some indication that they also spoke Latin to a considerable degree, of course, um, which is understandable considering that the Roman conquest of Italy began to take off after 300 BC. Um, and it might not have been difficult uh, for, to find a Samnite who was also fluent in Greek, right? Uh, for example, Cicero tells us that a Samnite named Herennius Pontius had once met the Greek philosopher Plato uh, in a meeting that was hosted by the ruler of the city of Taranto in South Italy. Um, so if this story is accurate, and we know, of course, that Plato lived in the late 4th century BC, oh, sorry, the, the late 5th, 5th, early 4th century BC. Uh, if this story is accurate, then it's quite possible that the uh, that this Herennius, this Samnite called Herennius, um, was actually able to converse with Plato in Greek, right? It's a possibility. Um, incidentally, this Herennius Pontius was apparently the father of Gaius Pontius, uh, who was the famous Samnite general who allegedly captured all the Roman legions in, um, in a mountain pass in 321 BC during the so-called Second Samnite War. So you mentioned earlier that um, scholars need to lean on um, Greek and Roman writers previous who were um, writing about the Samnites to some some degree as as you're looking at this topic. Um, what so what is it about the about the the their writings then? Because you did so you did mention there are inscriptions that survive that um, scholars believe they they wrote. Is it that 
they weren't writing on papyrus scrolls that survived. Was it was it that what they were writing about is it was was different? So perhaps they weren't writing historical events, but they were writing about other other topics. Can you? I think I I think you know what I'm getting at. Can you? Uh, yeah. What is it about the about their writing that uh, maybe um, lacks par- the particular facts that would help uh, scholars understand um, the Samnites more? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question, Andrew. And I think um, the, the 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 fact of the matter is we don't really have any Samnite historical writing. Okay. Um, we have the Greek historical writers and the, the Roman historical writers. Those are the ones that have come down to us, but we don't really have any Samnite historical writing. So we don't even know if there ever was any Samnite historical writing. If there was, we didn't, you know, we, we don't, we don't have it. It, it, it somehow got lost along the way. Um, they would have had oral traditions. Um, they would have had oral traditions. They would have had like family stories that would have been passed on from generation to generation. And we know this because some of these stories actually turn up in the Greek and Roman accounts. So these Greek and Roman authors, sometimes they convey to us what would have been narratives like oral traditions that the Samnites would have um, would have uh, transmitted amongst themselves, would have created and transmitted amongst themselves. And some of these oral traditions are to do with um, origin myths, right? So I can, I can talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that as well. Um, we, um, but, but just to, before I, before I get onto that, um, in terms of the inscriptions, so yeah, so we don't really have any his- Samnite historical writing. We don't have any Samnite literature. Um, and, and like I said about the historical writing, we don't even know if there ever was any Samnite written literature. Um, but we do have the inscriptions and the inscriptions are interesting because they, um, uh, are usually they're usually official uh, in character, so so there'll be like honorary, honorary, honorific um, texts that were written on stone in uh, in honor of certain individuals or in honor of the building of certain edifices, like temples, for example. I was I was talking about the Pietro Bondante temple just now, um, so it's no accident that we most many of the inscriptions that we have from ancient Samnium were found in Pietra Bondante because it was, like I said, it was a really important place for the Samnites. And they really, you know, they really invested a lot in monumentalizing it. So you had these like really important people, these important Samnite families who wanted to show their wealth and show their power. Um, So they would finance the building of these sanctuaries. And in doing so, they would, you know, they they would put up these inscriptions um, commemorating the events. So, so that's that's what the inscriptions are. They're very different kinds of texts than uh, than the texts that we have, like the historical texts and uh, and the the literature. They're sort of focused towards um, certain, you know, uh, either commemorating certain individuals or commemorating the certain buildings. Um, we also have some coins. Uh, so, so in, in addition to the inscriptions, we also have coins, and the coins are also important because um, some of them. Um, are evidence that uh, some Samnite communities might have been issuing their own coins. Um, so, so the inscriptions are useful uh, for uh, for uh, the history, for trying to understand uh, the social history of the Samnites. So, so what was you know 
who uh, who were the elites and what were they interested in um, financing? How did they want to portray themselves? Um, we also have inscriptions that are uh, stamps on uh, on pottery tiles. Um, and these stamps um, are also kind of official in character because they mark, um, they, they sort of signal who the magistrates in office were um, in a given place and uh, at a given moment. So, so I would say, yeah, just, just to wrap things up, I think the inscriptions have this kind of official bureaucratic sometimes, you know, um, character to them, which as you say, is a very different kind of, um, uh, historical information than the the sort of information that we find in in the Greek and Roman um, historical accounts. But I was saying that even though we don't really have any written Samnite historical accounts or Samnite, any written Samnite literature, uh, we do have some of these stories that apparently they told amongst themselves. So we have access to some. We we have potential access to some of uh, what would have been you know Samnite oral traditions. Um, and, uh, and that again, leads me to the subject of identity, which, uh, as you can see is one of my favorites. Um, so the, um, uh, the, we have stories that are known as the sacred spring stories, um, the sacred spring myth cycles. Um, and, uh, one of the better known versions of this, uh, this myth is transmitted to us by, by a Greek author called Strabo, who lived in the time of Augustus. So the story begins with the Samnites, uh, I'm sorry, the story begins not with the Samnites, but with the Sabines, you know, those same ones who, according to Roman mythology, uh, had been closely involved in the, the origins of Rome itself. Think of the story about the Sabine women, for example. So the Sabines uh, were suffering a lot because of their constant fighting with the, with their neighbors, the Umbrians, and they were trying to find a solution to their suffering. So at one point, the Sabines decided that the thing to do would be to get all the children that had been born uh, that previous spring, and uh, and give them over, as it were, you know, give them over as gifts to the god Ares or Mars. And this, is, and this meant that once these children had grown, uh, they would have had to leave their homes and find somewhere else to live. Uh, so when the time came for them to do this, uh, they were, uh, so the story goes, they were guided by a bull and, uh, and they eventually settled in the place where the bull decided to stop. And in so doing, they became the Samnite people, right? So um, it's what's interesting to note about this story is that uh, the Samnites were not the first thing is that the Samnites were not the only people in Italy who were perceived to originate from the Sabines in this in this manner. Uh, we have similar stories to the one I just told you um, about how other peoples uh, of Italy, of ancient Italy, were also descended from the Sabines, um, uh, who had you know the, these would have the stories were also involved children who get dedicated to Mars or other deities. Um, uh, and here again, I need to mention Emma Dench's book uh, because she says that these um, these sacred spring stories. I, I'm using the plural because, like I said, it's not just the story about the Samnites, but there were other talented peoples that were associated with these narratives as well. Um, so these sacred spring stories um, are really unique 
they're really unique from a cultural point of view um, in the sense that they don't really conform to the kind of origin myths and origin stories that uh, that you get in Greco-Roman culture, right? Um, and this is because the Greek and Roman origin myths usually involve individuals um, uh, who were ind individual people who were commemorated as founding ancestors or civilizing heroes. Um, whereas the, the sacred spring stories, including the one about the origin of the Samnites, they don't really mention any particular individuals you might have noticed, right? So but instead they emphasize the collective, the groups a lot more. Um, but of course it's important to remember that we're dealing with myths and legends here. Um, so I, I personally think that um, it's unlikely that the Sacred Spring stories preserve a memory of real historical migrations that actually happened in ancient Italy, uh, or, uh, or of how the Samnites actually originated. Instead, um, I'm more inclined to think, and I follow Dench's um, interpretation here, I'm more inclined to think that we should see these stories as um, really important evidence, first of all, evidence of Samnite, a kind of Samnite literature, if you will, and not, not written literature, but oral tradition. Um, so we should see them, we should see these stories um, about uh, as, as sources, uh, historical sources, about how the Samnites and, um, and other communities in ancient Italy thought about themselves, right? How, what they thought about themselves and what they thought about how they originated and what they thought w uh, was uh, their relationship with each other. Um, so this idea that they were all sort of descended from the Sabines seems particularly significant. And um, up until now, there have been different interpretations of this, um, of this, uh, this feature, if you will, of, of these, uh, these oral traditions that, that have come down to us indirectly via the Greek and Roman accounts. Interesting, Raphael. So how do you, how do you reconcile um, that, if, if using that um, first tradition that, that you, you shared, the uh, tradition about the, the Samnites originating from the Sabines. Um, it's written by um, Strabo, who is yeah. um, who's uh, in, in Rome. Um, it, it, yeah. So do you so so on one hand, certainly there's a it sounds like there's a tradition there um, that Rome believed um, because it was a Roman writer. But how do you reconcile? Do you have any? And you might have to infer. Um, do you believe that? Is there any evidence th that uh, the Samnites uh, also held that tradition, or 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 do scholars believe that that was a Roman uh, tradition about the Samnites? Well, that's uh, a really um, interesting question. Like I said, um, because these sacred spring stories display certain characteristics that. Uh, single them out, uh, that differentiate them from the kind of origin myths that we normally get in Greek and Roman culture. Um, because, of, because, in other words, because these sacred spring stories seem really unique, you know, non-Greek and non-Roman, um, people tend to think that um, even though we hear about these stories in Greek and Roman 
author, but because you know Greek and Roman authors describe them, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the stories themselves are Greek uh, or Roman fabrications, because they're, they've got this unique quality to them. You know, they, they, like I said, the fact that we don't really get in the Sacred Spring stories, we don't really get any civilizing heroes, any individual civilizing heroes, and that's important because um, normally. In, in Greek and Roman culture, when you have an origin myth, it normally involves an individual founding ancestor or an individual um, civilizing hero. And that seems to be missing from the, from the sacred spring stories. So that's one piece of evidence that have led certain people, including Emma Dench, to suggest that the sacred spring stories are indeed, like essentially, they, they are um, originally they would have been Samnite traditions. They would have been Samnite oral traditions, which um, which we hear about via the Greek and Roman sources, but which are not essentially, you know, Greek uh, and Roman inve inventions. But I mean, you can argue both ways. Uh, you're right to be skeptical. You're right to be skeptical because I mean, what what guarantee do we have that these stories weren't just you know invented? Um, we, 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 we really can't tell. And that's something that, that's a phrase we often use when talking about the Samnites. Uh, we don't know, we don't, we don't know for sure. We don't, you know, we can't say that for certain. And you'll, you're going to hear me say those things quite often, you know, throughout our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It makes a topic like this interesting, right? Because, um, yeah. not all the information is, is, um, is, is, is there. So, you have, you know, it's it. You have to kind of piece thing, things together, and it sounds like there's spots where scholars uh, have evidence, and there's spots where scholars need to infer, etc. Et, et but it it makes for an interesting conversation. Yeah. So what's known about their governance structure, Raphael? Right. Um, well, <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but there's actually not. Uh, we don't really know that much about uh, the the governance, the, the the kind of governance that the Samnites had. Uh, I mean, uh, to put it differently, there's still that we uh, there's still a lot that we don't know about how the Samnites were organized politically. On the one hand, it's generally agreed, um, or um, uh, better yet, it's um, it would seem that by say 350 BC, some kind of organized government had developed among the Samnites, among the so-called Samnites. But it's still a bit unclear what sort of government this was. One major issue here is, um, is knowing whether individual Samnite communities or towns were politically independent from each other, or uh, whether all these towns and villages and uh, districts even were all sort of under the same unified authority. Uh, people have had a hard time trying to answer this question. So on the one hand, you have scholars who think that the Samnites were indeed divided into um, what would have been little micro-states, uh, kind of similar to the better-known city-states of the ancient Mediterranean, such as Athens or Rome itself. Uh, and this kind of theory makes sense when we think about those Samnite towns that um, issued their own coins, like I mentioned previously, uh, such as the town of Alifai, and Compulteria, to name a few. We also get places such as Bovianum, which was higher up in, in, the, in the mountains, uh, that apparently had its own chief magistrates, its own um, government officials, 
who were called the Medis Tuvtiks in the in the Oscan language. But there's also the possibility that um, most, if not all, of the Samnite communities were actually joined together in a larger territorial unit, at least temporarily. Uh, the scholars who go for this second view tend to argue that the Samnite towns were probably not large enough. Remember I said initially that the Samnites weren't really urbanized? So basically, the people think that uh, because the Samnite towns weren't, were never really large, um, very never very large, they wouldn't have been able to function as political units on their own, right? They would have been too small and simple. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, the evidence that's currently available uh, means that we can argue both ways. I personally think that we're most likely dealing with versatile communities. These so-called Samnite communities would have been capable of functioning, I think, personally, that they would have been capable of functioning either independently on their own, um, as well as collectively at certain junctures. For example, when they were all, well, when most of them were apparently um, confronting the Roman Republic in the late 4th and uh, early 3rd centuries BC, for example. Be that as it may, we do know that, say, by 250 BC, uh, the Samnites had apparently developed their own political offices or magistracies. And that's important because um, it suggests a kind of republican character to whatever system of government that they may have had going on. We've already talked about the Medis Tuvtiks, the chief magistrate, but we also have the Oscan, um, again, Oscan inscriptions. So this is something that inscriptions are also very good at telling us. We have Oscan inscriptions that mention the offices of Kensor and Aidil, uh, which, of course, seem to parallel the Roman offices, the Roman Republican offices of censor and edel. Um, what's interesting, though, is that we're still not entirely clear about what um, exactly these political offices entailed, uh, what powers they commanded, what was their jurisdiction, what was the term of office, uh, and also how did people come to occupy these offices? Were they elected? And if so, by who? Uh, under what circumstances? And, and so on and so forth. So if we try to look for clues in the ancient Greek and Roman historical accounts, what we find is the information that during the wars with Rome, late 4th, early 3rd centuries BC, it would appear that the Samnites were at that point under the authority of a supreme military commander of sorts, uh, such as the man who our source's name as uh, Gaius Pontius, um, who is famous, like I said, is famous for having captured all of the Roman legions in a mountain pass in 321 BC. So in the end, uh, we still don't quite understand how the offices that are mentioned in the inscriptions match up with the political um, uh, leaders that uh, are named in the historical accounts. And just to finish off, um, another political institution that our sources refer to, our Greek and Roman sources refer to, is the so-called Samnite Council or the Samnite Common Council. Now, according to the ancient authors, this was a council that decided on issues of foreign policy, what we would call issues of foreign policy, such as war and peace, uh, which is why we hear so much about this so-called council uh, in the accounts that we have about the, the wars uh, between the Samnites and the Roman Republic. 
So on this level, at least, um, it would seem that the Samnites may indeed have been able to function as a kind of union or federation, if you will. Um, but again, we don't quite know how this council was formed, uh, who had the right to participate, how were the council members chosen, uh, and how long they were allowed to stay in the council, and so on and so forth. Uh, so you'd think that that sort of thing uh, would have somehow been exclusive to, say, you know, aristocratic male individuals. Uh, I think we have a tendency to assume that. But the plain fact of the matter is that we just don't know. I want to go back, Raphael, to uh, uh, a comment I made about uh, uh, Strabo and a point of clarification. So is he considered, just to make sure I didn't say something, um, you know, blaringly inaccurate, uh, is he is he considered... Is he considered um, uh, Roman? Was he considered? Is it, it was? Is he considered from um, the you know more the Eastern Me- Mediterranean, like Greece or the yeah. Anatolian Peninsula? And when he was writing about the, the Anatolian, oh okay. And when he Sorry. was no no it's okay. And when he was writing about the Samnites, was he where was he where, where is it believed he was writing uh, from? Well, you know, um, I'd have to check my notes, um, but I think. Well, we know that he was from this place called, um, well, that used to be called Pontus. That would have been the um, the northern coast of what is now Turkey. So as you, as you rightly said, Anatolia. Um, he was, um, well, he received a Greek education, so he wrote in Greek, although he might have been able to speak Latin as well. We're not sure if he was ever made a Roman citizen, which is why I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, you know, 100% sure that we could call him a Roman, but he was certainly um, very well connected in Rome. He spent, we know that he spent some time in Rome um, and, um, and he's regarded as, um, even though he may not have been, may not have been a Roman citizen, um, he's regarded as somebody, very much someone who, who speaks from, you know, a, a place of power. So he speaks from Rome. He, he, his view is normally seen as, as the view, the official Roman imperial perspective on things in general. I mean, I'm not an expert on Strabo, so I wouldn't, you know, you, you, it might be good for you to check, double check this. Um, but yeah, uh, all more or less it. All, all, all good. Yeah, I got the, uh, suffi- you know, the, the disclaimer sufficiently in there. So if anyone wants to research Strabo more, um, and I'm sure this show is going to cover Strabo at, at, at some point as a, uh, yeah. um, uh, from, from a historical perspective. Okay, so were the Samnites believed to be maritime people at all? Did they travel at all via sea? That's a very interesting question. It's a question that's not normally asked by people who study the Samnites. Um, Maybe that's because everybody sort of tends to assume that uh, the Samnites weren't great sailors, uh, weren't great seafarers because they came from a landlocked country, as it were. Uh, but we do have evidence. Your, your question made me think about it, about, about things from a different angle. And mm-hmm. um, I realized that we do have evidence that some Samnites might not have been completely hopeless at sea. Uh, for example, there are references to Samnites serving in the Roman fleets of ships during the First Punic War. 
of 264 to 241 BC. So uh, by, let me just contextualize that. Mm -hmm. By that point, the Samnite Wars are over, right? The Samnites have been um, apparently uh, defeated by Rome after a series of, of you know, conflicts. And after that, after that uh, uh, by all accounts, some sort of alliance was formed between uh, the, the Samnites and the Roman Republic which meant that the Samnites were under the obligation, like all the other Roman allies in Italy, the Samnites would have been um, under the obligation to provide uh, manpower, right? Provide um, uh, warriors to go and fight um, um, in, in, in Rome's wars. And the First Punic War was one of these instances where you had Samnites fighting on the Roman side against Carthage. And as you know, uh, most of the major battles of the First Punic War were fought at sea. Uh, and we do hear about these Samnites uh, serving in fleets. So that suggests that they, would, they wouldn't have been completely, you know, uh, hopeless, uh, perhaps. And we also need to remember that uh, some of the people who our sources characterize as Samnites actually lived along the Adriatic coast uh, of Italy. Uh, so presumably they would have been familiar with seafaring to some extent. Uh, this is the case of the so-called uh, Frentani, who some ancient authors present as a kind of Samnite offshoot, as it were, or you know, tribe. That's a term that's all, also used occasionally. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the Samnites certainly weren't famous for, for their seafaring. Uh, in the same way that the Greeks or the Phoenicians were, for example. Okay. Do any of their uh, previous settlements exist today archaeologically? Is there any vestiges of their uh, settlements? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, many of them were excavated over the last 40 to 50 years, but we do have... Um, excavated settlements. We have the settlement of, um, well, the thing is, we don't really know what they were called. We're not sure uh, about what the settlements that have been identified archaeologically were called in antiquity by the, the people who inhabited them, who would have been, would have been Samnites. Um, so there's this place called Monte Vairano, we don't know what the ancient name was. Some people think it was called Aquilonia. And if that's true, it would be great because Aquilonia is mentioned as one of the big Samnite centers in the, uh, in the accounts about the Samnite Wars. Um, one of the big Samnite capitals, even. Uh, one of the places that held out the longest against you know, the Roman advances. But we don't know if Monte Vairano, which is in, in current day, Molise, uh, that's the, the name of the, the modern Italian region. It's just north of Naples, just north of Naples, um, behind the mountain, uh, on the mountains, uh, in the mountains. Um, so you have, so you have Monte Vairano, uh, and that's been excavated by an Italian archaeologist, one of the major authorities on Samnite archaeology called Gianfranco de Benedittis. He's been excavating Monte Vairano since the 1970s, and he's published a lot of books and articles and chapters about about that. So I can, you know, I can I can recommend his work 
to whoever is interested in knowing more about Montevidano. It's really exemplary. Um, we also know quite a few cemeteries. The cemeteries are, in a sense, they're, they're easier to find and easier to excavate than the settlements uh, because cemeteries are, are tidier in a way, in the sense that people would, you know, dig the graves, put the people in, cover them up, and that would be it. Um, so when you when you do come across a, a cemetery, you're likely to find an intact um, archaeological context. Although that's not always the case, considering you know the the fact that you get a lot of tomb raiding um, from time to time. So some of these tombs were disturbed. Also, you get sometimes other kinds of disturbance caused, for example, by agricultural activity. So sometimes people start to, you know, cultivate fields uh, in the places where the, the cemeteries used to be. So that leads to some, you know, some um, tampering and, uh, and disturbance of the, of the archaeological sites. But, but there are quite a few cemeteries, and, uh, and the cemeteries usually um, tell us about the earlier periods as well of Samnite history, uh, even before we can start speaking of Samnites properly, you know, like the period known as the Iron Age, which goes all the way up to, all the way down to, or actually no, all the way up to um, mm -hmm. 1000 BC. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so the cemeteries are interesting in that respect as well. They tell us about Iron Age society uh, and about the kinds of communities that, we, that you get in the region that later became known as the Samnium or Samnite country. I would say that in terms of settlements, like proper Samnite period settlements, when I say Samnite period, I, I mean, I refer to the, to the established chronology, which is sort of mid-fourth to early first centuries BC, um, which is the period when the Samnites would have been, you know, active historically as a group. Um, so from that era, we know, we have perhaps a dozen excavated settlements. There aren't really that many. Um, and, and settlements of different types as well, not just, uh, not just larger nucleated settlements such as Montevidano, uh, which had a, a fortification wall as well. It was, it was um, at some point a stone wall was built around it. Um, you also get smaller, smaller types of settlement that, that have been excavated like farmsteads um, farmsteads, houses, uh, uh, and, uh, and also shrines, not just major sanctuaries like Pietra Bondante, but also, but also shrines. And Pietra Bondante is another example of, uh, of what I was saying just now, uh, about how we don't really know, we're not really sure about what these places were called. Like, so, so Pietra, but there's this huge, huge debate about whether Pietra Bondante, which is the modern name, obviously, um, whether the sanctuary there, the, like the sanctuary of Pietro Bonante, what is it identifiable with any of the places that our Greek and Roman sources mention in Samnium? So people used to think that it was the, it, it was the Samnite capital, like that, that Pietro Bonante was the Samnite capital, and because of that, they assumed it was uh, it was Bovianum, because Bovianum is is also like like Aquilonia, Bovianum is is also. Um, given a lot of prominence in the, in the historical accounts. But now we know that, that it, that's probably not true. Uh, so the real Bovianum has already been 
has probably already been identified. It's not too far from Monte Vairano. Um, and Pietro Bondante, well, we still don't, we're, we're not sure what, what uh, the Samnites called it. It sounds like um, the, uh, the civilization was bustling at one point in time. It, it sounds like it wasn't just um, uh, a past pastoral, but it sounds like there was a lot of different things occurring in the communities. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, many people tend to think that the Samnites were really quite poor uh, and that they were forced to eke out a very hard living up on the mountains. So there's this idea that because they lived in a harsh environment, I don't know if you've ever been to the Apennine Mountains, but, but you know, it's not the ideal place for agriculture, certainly not large-scale agriculture. So because of that, um, ever since antiquity, there was this stereotype about Samnite simplicity and poverty um, and this idea that they would, because they were so poor and destitute, uh, that they every now and then they would set up raiding parties uh, to attack the wealthier cities on the plains where agriculture was a lot easier. Uh, I personally think that there's um, there is some truth to this view, even though archaeologically archaeology has been showing us that um, things were perhaps perhaps not quite as desolate uh, up uh, up on the Apennine Mountains uh, as they might seem. And this brings me back to your question about whether the Samnites, uh, uh, you know, the bustling uh, and and the productivity, shall we say, of their civilization. What were they producing? What were they trading? You know, those are. Those are interesting points, the questions. First off, um, it's important to note that although agriculture was, wasn't as big a deal as it was in the coastal plains of Italy, there, was, there does seem to have been a significant degree of um, agriculture being done in the Samnite uplands, especially in terms of pulses and, uh, and beans. But of course, uh, there are other products that uh, that are more that were more suited to a high altitude mountain environment. Um, the Samnites were big on pastoralism, like I said. Um, uh, that is, they seem to have raised a lot of sheep and goats, uh, and this in turn would have meant that they had they would have had a surplus of uh, stuff such as wool, dairy products, and, and animal skins also. And also, we know that uh, the Apennine Mountains were a lot more forested back then in antiquity. Um, and this, of course, means that uh, timber would also have been abundant, um, more so than it is today. In fact, it seems likely that there was a big timber trade between the Apennine Mountains uh, and some of the coastal, of the big coastal cities. Uh, and some of the not so big ones, such as Pompeii. Um, but because Pompeii is so well preserved, people have been able to find, you know, traces of of wood that can be uh, traced back to the mountains, the central Apennine Mountains. So that's really, really cool. And it would be reasonable to assume that, um, you know, the Samnites were somehow managing to profit from from that uh, from that kind of trade. And that would certainly help us answer many important questions, such as, you know, how were they, how were they able to gather the, the resort, the resources, and uh, you know, the the 
the um, the capital, well, not capital, but the resources necessary to uh, to construct such a such a you know uh, such an impressive um, architectural complex, such as the one that we find in Pietro Bondante, the the temple and theater complex, uh, entirely built of limestone. You know, you you need a lot of um, a lot of resources for that. So so all in all, the Samnites were not don't seem to have been quite quite as poor and destitute as as people thought they were for for a very long time. Interesting. Closing question, Raphael. Um, you mentioned this in the periphery uh, a few times in 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 your responses about um, how their civilization eventually came to it to an end. So. So their so- their sovereignty as a civilization. Um, what's what's known about how it came to an end? Well, um, so for to understand that, we need to go back to that moment um, when the social war happens. Remember the social war. The, uh, that's um, when we see. Uh, that's the last time we hear about the Samnites posing a serious threat to Rome. Um, so the social war was the last major conflict between Rome and Italian communities who by that point had been Roman allies for centuries, like I said. Um, even though Rome eventually won this war, the Romans had to make a series of concessions to the Italians who had rebelled in uh, in 91 BC. And the most important concession was apparently their granting of Roman citizenship to all of the Italians. Now. It seems that it took a while for the Samnites to be included in the Roman citizen body. But by the Augustan period, uh, the process was probably complete. So um, what we see in Samnium in the decades after the social wars, when, when you know gradually these Italians, Samnites included, would have been uh, gradually integrated into the Roman citizen body, and become Romans, that they would have become Romans. Um, what we see happening from an archaeological point of view in Samnium, uh, on the whole, is a very mixed scenario, I would say. Uh, some towns that had been thriving uh, were apparently abandoned during the first half of the first century BC. Uh, although just how suddenly this happened, we really can't tell yet. So that's something that interests me, particularly at the moment. Um, other towns and villages uh, apparently um, carried on rather well, some of them even getting promoted to the status of Roman municipal centers. Uh, as for the sanctuaries, some scholars think that these places were deliberately abandoned or even destroyed because they'd had such you know, um, an important role as focal points of Samnite pride, as it were, Samnite confidence in the years leading up to the social war, at least. In other words, uh, Sanctuaries such as Pietra Bondante would have been major symbols of Samnite, shall we say, resistance to Rome, which the Romans would have wanted to wipe out, right? So there is some logic to this theory, um, of course, but as usual, things get a little more complicated when we try and look look at things on the ground. Um, and, And this is because archaeology has been showing us that many of these old Samnite sanctuaries um, apparently continued to be used, you know, in some kind, in some way, to continue to house some kind of activity after the social war, including Pietra Bonante. Right? In some cases, there's even evidence that these places 
um, continue to be used well into the imperial period. In any case, um, scholars nowadays generally stop talking about the Samnites once we get to the Augustan period. And uh, like I said, one of the reasons uh, for this, in addition to the fact that the Samnites would have officially become Romans um, by that point, uh, is that another reason is that Augustus himself um, seems to have made an effort to promote the idea of a united Italy, a unified Italy, which he called Tota Italia. Uh, this obviously involved rewriting the history of Italy, um, sort of ironing out all those old fissures and differences and rivalries that, that had been so prominent in the previous centuries. And because the Samnites uh, had gained such a strong reputation of defiance uh, to Rome, it would have been especially important to rethink their whole identity um, in Augustus's uh, brave new Italy, so to speak. And, and there's, um, I just wanted to finish by saying that um, there is a very good article on the subject uh, of how Samnite identity was forgotten or erased, um, also by the Samnites themselves. Um, there's a very good article about this um, that was published in 2014 by a scholar named Stephen Collins Elliott, which I highly recommend to whoever might be interested. This is a very fascinating topic. And uh, if we had more time, Raphael, I could definitely speak more with you on this topic. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks again for the invitation. I was, you know, honored to receive it. And uh, I, uh, I look forward to, uh, you know, to chatting again at some point. Me too, Raphael. Okay, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Scopacasa wrote, that's germane to this conversation, Ancient Samnium, Settlement, Culture, and Identity Between History and Archaeology. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Raphael and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.